Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online, and today on the podcast, I'm joined by our news editor, Nick Bostock, to talk about the latest news affecting primary care. Coming up, we're talking about Labour's plans for the NHS and general practice more specifically, which have not gone down well with a lot of GPs. We'll also be discussing plans to speed up patient discharges from hospitals and what this could mean for general practice, the RCGP's new exam for GP trainees, and our good news story this week takes a look at the latest data from England's friends and family test. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. First up, in December last year, Labour Shadow Secretary for Health and Social Care, Wes Streeting, entered a war of words with the BMA when he accused the union of being hostile to the idea of any NHS reform in an interview with the Sunday Telegraph. Over the last two weeks, both Wes Streeting and Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer have appeared in the national media where they've set out their thoughts about how the party would deal with the NHS and general practice if it comes to power after the next election. I think it's fair to say that some of their ideas about what needs to happen in general practice have not gone down well. Nick, Wes Streeting used an interview in The Times a couple of weeks ago to drop the bombshell that he wanted to do away with GP partnerships, which is something Sir Keir Starmer came out and backed in an opinion piece in the Sunday Telegraph at the weekend. What exactly did they say and how have GPs reacted to that? Yeah, so as you said, the the Labour leader and the Shadow Health and Social Care Secretary have both suggested they want to scrap the GP partnership model. Wes Streeting told The Times earlier this month that he was minded to phase out the whole system of GP partners. And his argument basically was that the NHS is broken and that radical solutions are needed. And then the Labour leader, Sir Keir Starmer, said something quite similar over the weekend in an opinion piece. Wes Streeting actually seemed to backtrack a bit shortly after his interview. And he suggested in Parliament that he was open-minded about potentially keeping the partnership model. But Sir Keir's line was really unambiguous, that getting rid of partnerships is the way Labour wants to go. He did suggest that this was something that might happen over quite an extended period, effectively phasing them out as existing partners retire, rather than any kind of big bang move to kind of buy out partnerships across the country. But he was clear that this was the way his party plans to go. And his argument is that our primary care model isn't working and that it's time for us to think about a new sustainable system, one that allows GPs to focus on caring for patients rather than the admin that comes with effectively running a small business. And he admitted it would be a big change, but he said that as GPs retire and those contracts are handed back, I want to phase in a new system that sees GPs fairly rewarded within the NHS, working much more closely with other parts of the system. And he said, not everyone will want to hear this, but it is the direction we need to go in. In terms of GP's reaction, some have pointed out that unless you solve the workforce crisis in general practice, in some ways, it doesn't really matter what the model is. We've talked many times on the podcast about the fact that over the past seven years or so, general practice has lost the equivalent of nearly 2,000 GPs. And given the number of patients registered with practices is continuing to rise and the population is aging and increasingly complex, There's just a growing mismatch between the GP workforce and the population. Keir Starmer says not enough young doctors want to take on the burdens and responsibilities of partnership as older doctors retire. But uh, and, And there may be some truth in that. But ultimately, that trend is driven by the growing pressure partners are working under. 
And if, if general practice were better funded and staffed and not in crisis as it is currently, then partnerships might well be a more attractive prospect for young doctors. And one point made by doctors' organisations is that partnerships have become increasingly unattractive also because funding just hasn't kept pace with rising demand. LMCs have voted for an item of service funding model that reflects activity. And doctors' organisations responding to the Labour comments this week also called for payments that reflect activity rather than the single blanket fee per patient per year that the current contract offers. And overall, many GPs felt that the Labour comments reflected a lack of understanding of the real issues facing the profession at the moment. Listeners to the podcast might find some of this all sounding very familiar because we obviously heard all of this last year from Sajid Javid when he was health secretary, this idea about phasing out the partnership model. And it it really had a a kind of quite a devastating impact with GPs reporting that it actually put people off becoming from partners because why would you buy into a practice if there's no certainty that that model is going to continue past the next sort of five, six years? We obviously talked about this on the podcast back then, but there really is a very strong argument for why the partnership model is such good value for money, isn't it? There. As you say, when he was Health and Social Care Secretary not so long ago, Sajid Javid floated the idea of scrapping the partnership model and switching to a salaried service. And there was a sense that the government talking about this kind of thing was adding to GP's doubts about taking on partnership roles, just because it creates uncertainty over the future of something that's a huge investment for an individual doctor. And these Labour comments may well have a similar impact ultimately. I mean, will younger GPs still take on partnerships if they think the next government could scrap the whole model? Having said that, as we mentioned earlier, any change is likely to be a slow process, gradual phasing out rather than a big bang. And so whatever happens, partnerships are likely to be around for a good while yet. And practices looking to recruit partners will still be able to make a strong case to GPs that that role is still worth taking on. And as you said, there are some really strong arguments ultimately about the benefits of the partnership model as a whole. I mentioned just now a letter from the Doctors Association UK and the GP Survival Group responding to Labour comments on partnerships. And that made the claim that GP partnerships are the most cost-effective part of the NHS. I mean, they pointed out that GP practices are delivering around six and a half appointments per patient per year on funding that was intended to cover one or two appointments. And they say that reflects the astounding value for money that partnerships offer because partner-led general practice has absorbed extra workload, often by working incredibly long hours and at great personal cost for individual partners, while a salaried model would simply not have offered that flexibility. That letter pointed out that GP practices are delivering 20% more consultations now than in 2019, despite GP numbers falling. And it says the partnership model is a big part of why that was possible. They point out that partnerships are a task and finish model rather than a time delineated clock on clock off model. So partners work until the task is done, basically. And the RTGP made a similar point that partnerships deliver good value for money because the model leans on the goodwill of partners going above and beyond. Clearly, that's something that's only sustainable up to a point. And Current high levels of burnout show that demand has long outstripped the elasticity of GP partners' goodwill, but the sense of partnerships holding responsibility for their patient population at practice level 
and responding to fluctuations in demand is a big argument in favour of the model. And it's also only been a couple of years since uh, an independent review commissioned by the government found that the partnership model offered freedom to innovate, to respond to local populations' health needs, offered value for money, accountability to local communities and benefits for continuity of care. And that review found that the model could continue to thrive if workload could be brought down to a manageable level. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned at the start there about Wes Streeting's war of words, and he's been, you know, quite hostile towards the BMA. And why do you think he's being so critical of doctors? I mean, he didn't just say in that interview you were talking about in the Times, he didn't just say he wanted to get rid of partnerships. He called the GP contract murky. And there was another interview that he did with Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves in the eye paper last week where he was quoted as saying that the NHS was too often run for doctors and not patients, which is really, you know, quite an inflammatory statement for the profession. So what what do you think is going on there? The inflammatory language that you mentioned has driven a lot of anger from GPs in response to the Labour comments on their vision for general practice. Where Streeting claimed that the financial arrangements in general practice were murky and opaque. And he said that no one can say how the money is spent or where it goes. You could argue that's a particularly surprising claim, given that general practice probably has more targets linked to specific things that they do for the money that they get. Uh, He also claimed that vaccinations were money for old rope. And in an article in the I newspaper, as you say, made a claim that the NHS was too often being run for doctors rather than for patients. It is really hard to see how that argument stands up, given doctors have ended up with a 25% pay cut over the past decade and a half. And as we know, GP workload is absolutely through the roof. But it looks like this is basically about how the party wants to position itself in the build-up to the next general election. It's trying to get the message to parts of the population who may not be natural Labour supporters that it isn't in the pocket of unions, that it won't just throw money at the NHS, and that it recognises the crisis facing the health service and isn't afraid to take that on. But clearly, the way the party's chosen to do this without consulting with GPs about these plans, for example, has left a really bad taste in the mouth for many who feel insulted and sidelined by the political party that they may have hoped would come in and support them in a way that the current government hasn't. Yeah, there's also been a lot of discussion around other comments that Wes Streety made in the Times interview about allowing more people to self-refer to specialists. And this is something Sir Keir Starmer reiterated in that opinion piece in the Sunday Telegraph and in an interview with the BBC's Laura Koonsberg at the weekend. What's the idea there? So Labour's talked about wanting to give patients the ability to self-refer in some cases rather than going through GPs for a referral to specialist services. Keir Starmer suggested patients with internal bleeding should be able to self-refer. And Wes Streeting talked about needing to see a dermatologist about a lump on his head. Some GPs felt these comments were misguided and pointed out that a lump on the head might well not be something for a dermatologist to look at. And they asked how patients would know they had internal bleeding or which service they would need to deal with it. In more recent statements, that internal bleeding changed to just bleeding. So I, I think there may be an element of clumsy wording that's part of the problem with the message here. As some GPs have pointed out, there is a case for more self-referral, but it needs to be clearly defined and delineated. It's already NHS England policy to work on expanding self-referral to some physiotherapy, hearing aid provision, weight management services, for example. Uh, But some GPs point out there may be a need for better triaging technology to help choose when self-referral is appropriate and to point people to the right specialist service. So really, it's about 
if this is something that's going to go ahead, something uh, just a little bit more detail on how it will work and a bit more thought in terms of how the message is put together and how it sounds if you're a GP listening to this on the front line. Yeah, definitely. We've been talking here about some of the things that Labour's been discussing in recent weeks relating to primary care. But we do also know some bigger picture measures that are part of Labour's health policy, which were announced at their annual conference last year. So it's perhaps worth just mentioning them as part of this. The party is talking about having a 10-year plan for the health service if it comes to power, which does actually sound very reminiscent of New Labour's NHS plan for those of us old enough to remember that. The main plank of the plan that we've kind of got detail on is a big commitment to workforce expansion, which, you know, I think everyone will be behind that. That would see the number of medical school places doubling to 15,000 a year. It would involve doubling the number of district nurses qualifying each year, training 5,000 new health visitors a year and creating 10,000 more nursing and midwifery clinical placements each year. So that's a huge workforce expansion they're talking about. They're also planning a long-term workforce plan for the NHS, which apparently we are going to get at some point in the next couple of months, the current Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, has said. But Labour wants to put together its own long-term workforce plan, which it says will include independent workforce projections. Also, Labour wants to look at developing new career paths into the NHS and new types of health and care professionals. But I mean, there's not really any detail on what those last two things would mean in reality. But, you know, alongside this, I think, you know, as you've talked about, Nick, They've certainly caused some concern with quite a lot of talk about this need for reform being attached to any extra investment. And I think that any talk about NHS reform, given the massive upheavals and reorganisations NHS workers have been through in recent years, and obviously the massive upheaval the pandemic has caused, will always cause some alarm amongst those working in the NHS. I think the big concern around the workforce plans and the way Labour, I mean, and probably the government have gone about approaching the issue is the fact that there's just not enough focus on retention as well. Labour's list is we're going to rebuild the workforce with all these, you know, expansion of medical training places, more trainees, et cetera, et cetera. But what about keeping the experienced workforce? And I think the issue with that seems to be that that's about money and that's about pay. It's about the the, the arguments that the BMA is having at the moment around you know, restoring pay to the level from a few years ago. And until you tackle retention, you can add new workforce at the entry level to general practice as much as you like. But if you keep on losing the most experienced GPs at a rate of knots, then it's hard to see how the service is going to be stabilised. Up next, since the last news episode of the podcast, we've seen Prime Minister Rishi Sunak announce his big idea to tackle the crisis in the NHS, which is £250 million of funding to speed up patient discharges from hospital. Nick, we know that there are around 13,000 people in hospital beds that don't need to be there, but they are there because there are problems with social care provision they need and they can't therefore leave the hospital. What's the government's big plan to sort this out? So the government has set out plans to buy extra beds in care homes and other settings to speed up discharge from hospital for patients who are ready to move out. Uh, There's a £200 million fund for this. Uh, and there's an extra £50 million to pay for upgrades to hospitals to improve ambulance hubs and facilities for patients who are about to be discharged. Uh, you mentioned the, the large number of patients currently in hospital who are deemed medically fit to be discharged. And the idea is that this funding could help get thousands of people out of hospital over the coming months. There are some worries, though, about how this could impact on general practice and primary care, aren't there? The government says patients who are discharged into expanded community facilities. We'll get support from GPs, nurses and other community-based clinicians to continue their recovery. 
And obviously, GPs and practice teams are already under intense pressure. So, you know, how exactly this will work remains to be seen. I mean, the, the BMA GP committee said last week that it was clear that these patients being stuck in hospitals causing a bottleneck. Uh, so, it, you know, it, it acknowledges absolutely that it's a problem that needs to be resolved. But it warned that moving them out would clearly have a direct consequence for other parts of the health service, such as general practice. So that's something the government can't ignore, and it needs to make sure that general practice is supported if it is expected to play a role in um, in looking after those patients once they move out of hospital and into community settings. Since that initial announcement, there's been a bit more detail published about how this funding will work. So the funding will apply up to the end of March this year, and it's intended to pay for up to four weeks of a new or extended package of care from the point of discharge. And it should be used for capacity over and above what integrated care boards already pay for. And anything after that four weeks would have to come out of existing budgets. NHS England has assigned each integrated care board a capped budget based on their weighted patient population. So they can pay up to that amount and get that money from NHS England. NHS England also says it expects most of that money to be spent on purchasing beds in a step down capacity. The guidance also says that ICBs will need to work with local authorities, primary care, community services and care home teams to ensure that people discharged receive adequate care, which needs to include a care and support plan being put in place within 48 hours and a full assessment within seven days. So it seems likely there would be some input from GPs and practice teams potentially into that work. The guidance does suggest that some of the funding could be used by ICBs to deliver wraparound NHS care which it says could include local enhanced service payments. But that is, I would imagine, likely to vary quite significantly from one area to another, I would expect. But we're talking about delayed discharges here, but there's also a real problem with patients being discharged too early in the rush to free up beds. And that is something that's already causing a huge amount of extra work for practices. We conducted a survey towards the end of last year, and according to that, 83% of GPs said that their practice was facing additional workload as a result of patients being inappropriately discharged too early from hospital. Quite a few GPs you know, said that they were seeing patients discharged without social care packages in place. Lots of them said they frequently had to deal with patients who'd been sent home without any follow-up plans or discharge plans. GPs reported that they were increasingly being expected to undertake follow-up tasks that really should be done by hospitals, such as titrating medication, monitoring patients, and even referring to other hospital departments. I mean, there was a few cases there where GPs reported that they'd had to send patients straight back into hospital. Basically, by the time they got to see them, they just weren't in a fit state to be at home. So obviously, the pressures on ambulances and A&E departments is a huge problem. And there is an urgent need to sort out some of the blockages in the system, as it were. But there really are, I think, some potentially unintended consequences to all of this plan to speed up discharges is that local health leaders are going to have to work through quite carefully, you know, both in terms of patient safety and in terms of ensuring there's the capacity to deal with any extra workload that ends up coming into primary care. Emma, you wrote an interesting story at the end of last week about changes to the exams GP trainees have to take to become fully qualified GPs. And those look set to come into effect this year. Yeah. So currently, GP trainees have to pass two exams as well as complete various workplace-based assessments to qualify as a GP. The exam we're talking about that's changing is the Recorded Consultation Assessment or the RCA now, the RCA was introduced during the pandemic as a sort of stopgap measure. I mean, it has evolved a bit over the time it's been in place, 
but I don't think it was ever really intended to be around forever. Before the pandemic, GP trainees had to complete an exam called the Consultation Skills Assessment or the CSA. And to do this, they all had to travel down to the RCGP headquarters in London to take the exam, no matter where they were, whether they were in the far north of Scotland, Northern Ireland or North London, they had to come down to Euston. And this was a simulated exam, standardised cases performed by actors, the trainees were then assessed on and they passed or failed based on their performance. Clearly, that sort of exam was impossible during the pandemic. So the Royal College of GPs, which oversees the exams, had to come up with an alternative, which is where the RCA came, the Recorded Consultation Assessment came from. Now, this exam, to pass this, trainees have to submit 13 real-life recorded consultations, some of which need to cover a range of mandatory criteria. So there's some advantages to this over the CSA. I mean, the main one being not having to travel to London. But there are some disadvantages to it as well. It, I mean, it can be quite hard to find the cases that the exact sort of things that should be submitted. GP trainees and trainers I've spoken to over the last couple of years have said, you know, it takes up a huge amount of time of a, for a GP trainee to try and identify which cases could be right from looking at the patient list at the start of the day and working out, you know, who they might want to get consent from. You know, it can take quite a long time to gather the right number and variety of cases they need. So that can be quite stressful. Um, It also takes GP trainers a lot of time to go through all of these recorded consultations with their trainees to work out which ones are best to submit. So on the one hand, you don't have the stress of having one big exam to do and leading up to that big stressful day. This is more of an ongoing stress that's kind of in the background all the time. So the new assessment that the RCGP is developing would see all trainees sit the exam remotely in their own practice. I don't think anybody really supported the idea of going back to in-person assessments in London. But the exam would be based on standardised cases like the CSA was with actors taking on the roles of patients, carers, etc. The RCGP's chair, Professor Camilla Hawthorne, took part in a Q&A with GP trainees just before Christmas and she suggested that the college was hoping for the exam to be in place in November this year. She also said that the standardised cases They're all new cases in this exam and they're based on modern general practice, as she said, and they're not the same cases that would have been in place during the CSA. So this new exam has been piloted. That happened in September and they're making further changes to it as a result of that. And once that process is complete, it will need to be submitted to the GMC to be approved. And all being well, the college hopes that will have happened in time for November 2023. One of the things the college has been looking at as part of this is differential attainment and trying to address that. That's right. So so during that Q&A I mentioned with trainees, Professor Hawthorne said that reducing differential attainment as much as possible had been central in the work to develop this new exam. Research in recent years has shown that doctors and medical students from black and other minority ethnic backgrounds perform worse on average than their white counterparts in exams during both education and training. This does affect all specialties, but it's something that's been a real issue for the RCGP in the past. Um, The RCGP and the GMC faced a legal challenge, actually, for racial discrimination, which centred on the consultation skills assessment, the CSA, back in 2014. In that case, the High Court ruled that the CSA was lawful and fair, so it deemed there was no case to answer to. But it's clear there were differences in attainment in the CSA based on ethnicity, and that has actually persisted with the RCA. Interestingly, you know, Professor Hawthorne said that 
the college initially thought that maybe the move to the RCA would address problems around differential attainment because the trainees would be, set, be submitting real-life consultations. They weren't standardised and they're marked by two examiners. But actually, it, it hasn't really changed that at all. The last MRCGP annual report, which covered August 2020 to July 2021, found that among UK medical graduates, the pass rate for the RCA was 97.1% for white candidates and 87.7% for black and ethnic minority candidates. And the pass rate for white international medical graduates was 58.8% compared with 51.9% for black and ethnic minority IMG candidates. So there is a difference there. And obviously, there's a lot of work to be done around this. And the college says it's working really hard to make this new exam as fair as possible. But Professor Hawthorne did point out that it was unlikely that the revamped exam would completely eliminate differential attainment. Finally today, our good news comes from the friends and family test that's carried out in England. Nick, why is that good news for GPs and their teams? So more than nine out of 10 patients in every region of England had a positive experience of their GP practice last November, according to the latest friends and family test results. And that shows, you know, the level that general practice is still performing at, despite the record pressure that we've gone on about. And, you know, the fact that the GP workforce is continuing to fall. Looking at a slightly more local level, I I mentioned that at least 90% of patients in each of England's seven NHS regions said their overall experience of general practice was positive. And that that went from 94% in southwest England to 90% in London. I mean, if you look down at integrated care board level, there's 42 of those in England. And there were overall positive scores above 90% in all but seven out of 42 integrated care board areas across England. Basically, the point is, it's a a really consistent picture of high levels of satisfaction, according to this measure, with general practice across the country. I think it's an interesting sort of counterpoint to the GP patient survey that we saw from last year, which found a really big slump in satisfaction with general practice. But what this suggests is that satisfaction with general practice has actually held up really well compared to the level seen pre-pandemic. So I think if you look at the results for November 2019 and you compare them to the results for now from the friends and family test, it's broadly the same. That is a remarkable achievement for general practice, given what we know about the pressure that GP practices are under. NHS England spokesperson said that GP teams are delivering record numbers of appointments with millions more taking place every month compared to before the pandemic. And they said it was great to see this kind of result, despite the demand in general practice. The BMA GP committee is along similar lines, effectively. They're saying that these figures show how hard family doctors and their teams are working to keep up with patient demand provide the care that their communities need in the face of mounting NHS pressure. So it's a, it's a really positive note for general practice at a time when there are a lot of negatives about. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening and thanks to Nick. I'm back next week, so please do join me then. In the meantime, don't forget that you can keep up to date with all the latest news affecting general practice and access a host of other resources on our website at gponline.com. 